Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. The places we live shape us. I don't care who you are or how indomitable your will. Your spirit is in dialogue with the place you live. For example, I live in New York City, a place I wrapped around me like a second skin when I was 18 years old. Back then, New York made me feel strong, cool, infinitely removed from the suburbs I grew up in. I've been here for about 25 years, and at this point what I mostly notice is the claustrophobic public spaces, the smallness of the sky. What do you feel when you hear the word Florida? Do the pleasure centers of your brain light up, imagining palm trees and pristine beaches? Or does your amygdala kick in as you imagine the ancillary costs of a week at Disney World? My guest today is the writer Lauren Groff. In her vivid, dreamlike new book of short stories, Florida is a humid, seething organism that wants to eat you, snake-infested, full of sinkholes, a thing to resist, get lost in, surrender to, and sometimes temporarily escape. Lauren Groff is the author of the novels Fates and Furies, Arcadia, and the Monsters of Templeton, and the short story collections Delicate Edible Birds, and her latest, Florida, and I'm delighted to be speaking with her today. Welcome to Think Again, Lauren. Thank you. Thank you for having me on the show. I thoroughly enjoyed Florida. And one thing that's really interesting about this collection is, you know, it's sort of like a concept album. Everything ties together and interweaves in interesting ways. Like, did you plan it that way? Did it just emerge that way? How did it, how did that happen? So it just emerged that way. Uh, The oldest story in this collection actually came out before my last collection. Okay. Um, So it's, it's over 10 years old at this point. And um, what happened was I just decided after I had written this novel I worked on it for a very, very long time. The, Fates and Furious. No, right? a oh. different one. The one after Fates and Furious. I'd, I'd actually, I started this like 12 years ago. I okay, started, okay. It was a really long, long time ago. And the 2016 elections happened. And I got to my final draft of this thing. And I read it over. And I thought, you know, it's kind of ingrown. It, it, it feels like it's just talking literature, talking about literature. And it's not really engaged politically. And it's, um, it made me really sad. And it's not a book that I ever wanted to be in the world. So I threw it out. And then I started thinking, oh, my God, right? Like, I've got to give uh, Riverhead a book. And um, I had all these stories that I had published. And I realized that if I published a few more and created a sequence of the stories, that it would, in fact, act as a concept album, and it would uh, develop an argument throughout the the course of the story. And so that's what I did. I I have to just detour back into what you just said. So you had written most of a novel, all of a novel? Oh, multiple different drafts of a novel. And you you threw it out. Well, I throw out most of the work that I do. Yeah, yeah. But I like it. So um, the reason why I throw it out is um, if at a certain point a book feels finished and you read it and it's just it's not sort of reaching the platonic ideal of what you want it to do there's no point in it being in the world and i i like failure like i actually think that as a creative person failure is one of the most beautiful things you can do because it shows you the outlines of the world and the outlines of your own capacities um so you can either embrace those capacities or you can push really hard against them you can embrace sort of the limitations that the world puts on you or you can push really hard against them so i I count all of those 12 years of writing that one um and it was multiple different forms i mean it started as a translation one into historical fiction one into sort of like a david markson like collage book Mm -hmm. um and then at the end um i threw it out and i wrote uh which is the last story about the 
failure to write this thing about Guy de Maupassant, um, which had been sort of the culmination of this long project that I thought was a novel all those years. Okay, I was just about to ask you that. Yeah, because, yeah, yeah Eport, in Eport, the mother, the character who, she's not named, she's just the mother. She's the mother. <laughs> um, and with her two sons is is traveling around in France trying to write it's her thesis it's her it's I, um, a work it's a work a work of some kind about Guy de Maupassant and she ultimately decides that she admits to herself that she absolutely loathes Guy de Maupassant <laughs> she once sort of liked him at one time or one part fragment of him but he saved her life at a certain point <laughs> yeah. yeah and writers can do that and then when you sort of slowly sidle up into their lives you realize sometimes with horror that they're not actually great people <laughs> Sometimes, yeah. Well, actually, and you have a line, I think it's in that same story, which is that I think it's her reflecting on a friend who ultimately commits suicide, that he's maybe too nice of a person Mm -hmm. to be a great writer. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, you're saying that this happens, you know, you can be disillusioned about your own literary heroes, but you're also sort of saying in that moment, or she's saying that, that maybe every writer is somehow rotten. I think, well, <laughs> What's I think, going on there? Well, I don't think every writer is rotten. I actually think that most writers are profoundly good people. Okay. I mean, like, look at George Eliot. She was a good person. A true Marilyn Robinson, is there more oh of a saint God. on the planet? Yeah, right? I, I, no. I, 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 had the, I had the privilege of meeting her a couple years ago, and I was... She was one of those people that you meet where you're just like, can you please now become an adoptive yes. member of my family? She or vice emanates versa? light. Yeah, I mean, she. Yeah. I mean, she's really, truly, tremendously. You can tell she's just a good person, right? Yeah. So, but in order to write the things that uh, are really incisive and and to go down deep into the work. I think you do need to sometimes be at least a little bit of a murderer on the inside. Mm. I mean, you need to mm-hmm. really not care about ramifications until the editing process. Uh, and you have to throw everything in, be as risky as possible, do everything that you possibly can to, to sort of hit that that ideal that you have in your head. Right. That seems like a really interesting balancing act. You know, I mean, first of all, it strikes me as incredibly brave and I'm not just saying this to flatter you but like a real deep level of faith or something to write and write knowing that you might just throw it all out knowing that 99% of what you produce may be failure probably will be and then to do it anyway. It's not brave so much as pragmatic, right? So I think um, my propensities are toward OCD and anxiety and depression so I've got a lot of just like codependent psychological issues, which I deal with, right? And one of the ways I deal with them in my work is to to sort of uh, create a work environment in which I'm tricking myself out of them in some mm. ways. And uh, the work environment is a, a place of play um, and experimentation and writing really fast right. first drafts that don't matter and intentionally doing them and long hands because I can't read my own handwriting and it's really messy and gross. Um, <laughs> and even, I mean, I actually really like writing multiple drafts, throwing them out, coming back to them, throwing them out um, in order to sort of embrace the chaos. Um, right. Because otherwise my my natural propensities are to make things airless, make things too perfect, perfect in the beginning and not allow, you know, Lo- Leonard Cohen has this beautiful line in Anthem, the cracks of the way the light gets in, right? right. So if you, you intentionally put 
cracks into your work at every level, then you can let the light in um, and work against your own worst impulses. So I do understand this. And my way in is that I sometimes write songs and I've found it really useful to just and necessary to create a space where I can just go and jam and like make crazy sound that has where there's no expectation you get it. of it ever yes. being heard. Yeah. It's just joy, right? I mean, it's pure pleasure and joy, and it's what got us into this creative work to begin with, right? I mean, this is this is why we do what we do out of the the ecstasy and the pleasure of that moment. So, why punish yourself? That's right. right? I mean, I guess the question is, or what I'm interested in in your case is sort of how you've managed to organize your time and your life so that that amount of play is possible within Mm -hmm. all the other constraints that people face in their lives? I mean, you've had great success as a novelist, so obviously that creates certain freedoms. Well, the, the Before truth, that, you yes, know, yeah. and the truth of the matter is that I am a product of tremendous privilege, and we don't talk about this enough, but, you know, I'm a white woman in America, upper middle class, born to parents who were very educated and wanted um, their children to do what they wanted to do. They took on my college debt. I happened to meet the best human on the planet in college. Um, He's my husband. And we were able to create a life together in which I insisted on my space and my freedom and the fact that he is the 60% parent, I'm the 40% parent. So all of these things are, are... benefits of my absolute tremendous privilege in life. And I'm owning up to it because if I don't own up to it, it's false. If I say that all of this came out of some inherent talent or um, anything like that, that's also false. You know, my ability to work hard is from the fact that I've been given these gifts and I need to pay attention to that so that we can extend these gifts to other people, right? Yeah. So that so that we can be aware of the fact that other people were not born into this position and so that we're able to reach out a hand and help them get to the place where they're able to actually seize the privilege that I've been able to seize. I was talking to the historian Neil Ferguson at one point and he was talking about, we were talking about how with the platformization of everything, artists are getting paid less and less for their work. And he was like, basically the only way that people are going to be able to afford to be artists is if they have trust funds. And I was, you know, as he said this, I was thinking, well, that is probably true. And then he followed this up with, but then where's your self-respect? Right. I thought, well, if the, you know, if, if the reality is that people need protected spaces somehow in order to have the freedom to do these things, then those protected spaces should be created and valued wherever they come from. I mean, it Absolutely. shouldn't be the unique pro- province of rich people, but, no. but it should, if that's happening too, it shouldn't be like, where's your self-respect? You so know? we need to recognize yeah. the privileges inherent in being able to create. And then we need to change the system so that anybody who needs to, who can, who should be a creator can right. do so, right? And we're going the exact opposite direction right now as a society. We're going in the, the direction of really only making a hegemony of wealthy people and only they will be the ones who will be able to make things and that is such a travesty and that is actually um, a a tragedy actually it's a societal tragedy and I want to talk about the stories in a second (laughs) we're we're going off piece I know but this is fun though it doesn't take a particularly attentive reader to see that there is a lot of like dread at the 
fringes and sometimes in the center of the lives of the people in these stories. You spoke of being having anxiety yourself, but I, I also I also recognize that feeling as mm-hmm. somebody living in these times. This mm-hmm. sense that at any moment something terrible is about to come down on us. Yes, yes. Well, I mean, I, I really feel like that's a, a precondition for being a, a awake nowadays. I mean, just you know, you look at the news for two minutes and you feel like, oh my gosh, the sky is falling. But on the other hand, too, I mean, if we actually paid close attention to what's happening to the environment, we all would be running around with our heads on fire, right? right. The fact that we have all decided to collectively ignore climate change or to only worry about it in discrete chunks as opposed to actually allowing it to change the large-scale systems that are actually destroying us, right. this is collective hypnotism. I mean, we've we've all been um, collectively taught that the needs of a few greedy men are worth throwing away the planet. Um, I think there's another piece of it, which your stories get at as well, though, which is the like day-to-day decisions we make about our own psychological survival. Right. We're like, I am never going to sleep again unless (laughs) I put this in a little box right? today. It, because you know. if we don't, we, we would die of it. I mean, there's that there's an amazing quote in um, Middlemarch by George Eliot mm. about, um, and maybe you can find it later and splice it I'm in. I'm getting but, like, that George Eliot is like I a love hero her. of yours. I love George yeah. Eliot. <laughs> um, but um, it's, it's about like, if you were actually to listen to what lies on the other side of silence, the sound of grass growing or squirrels heart beating could break your heart. Something like that. I'm sort of yeah, paraphrasing. Yeah, yeah. But it's true. If you actually paid really close attention to what's happening, um, you would be so vulnerable that you would not be able to function on a day-to-day basis. And this is the case in terms of climate change, but in terms of actually raising children. Like, if you think about it, right. you're creating these people that you love more than anyone, and you know they're going to die someday, right? I mean, like, And there's right? that absolutely beautiful image in that one story. Um, maybe it's the final story. Ipo. 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 The boy who is like a clear pond that if you or body of water that you you know you just carelessly throw a stone into and then it's always forever looking back at you from the bottom this sensitivity and this awareness you know mm-hmm. never to forget mm-hmm. yeah yeah and it's uh, you know this book isn't autobiographical in any way but it is my most personal book and I did steal from people I love <laughs> for that and that is absolutely the description of my older son like you say one thing to him you see it sort of make a mark on him so like what do you do? I mean, the world's a hard place, right? You can't allow such a tender, sensitive child to go into it and be beaten up on a daily basis, right? So you have to allow him to make his own mistakes, but you have to watch the pros- progress of the pain, right? So it's this, yeah, it's this yeah. incredibly difficult, fraught thing to be a sensitive person in the world, to have a sensitive person in the world. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this must be you too, as a yeah, writer. Oh, no. Um, yeah, massively. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, that, that again, not, you know, not to make the intentional fallacy and assume that every narrator is you or whatever, but in the first story uh, in the book, which is where the, does she have a name or is she? No, she doesn't have a name. Okay, right. <laughs> she is the mother, is the mother, the woman is, is always taking these nightly walks around her neighborhood. And just the way that like every single thing that happens seasonally with nature mm-hmm. in the neighbor's windows with the dog she runs into just kind of like seeps into mm-hmm. her mm-hmm. and then also like activates her imagination and swarms around in there. It's mm-hmm. like, I, but I have that sense throughout the book that that the world is just 
seeping in at every moment mm-hmm. and cannot, it seeps in and it just transforms the person and is transformed mm-hmm. itself as well. By Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It's like limestone, right? Like it allows all the water to filter down into the aquifer underneath. Um, yeah. th- that was one of the images I was thinking of when I was putting together the books or there's, the fall of water into the aquifer, but there are also it's um, a lot of verticality is in the book too. I mean, like, but actual literal verticality. So there's this one story called uh, the Midnight Zone, which is all right. about falling in a lot of ways, right? But it's also also about being able to see way down deep. Um, right. And there's the you talked about Ghosts and Empties, which is the first story, and it we start with her yelling at her children, basically, or of escaping the house, so that <laughs> she's not yelling down at her children, and at the end, like there's the moon above so um, there's a lot of motion upward and downward motion not just I mean also socioeconomically in the book too and so I built this book out of not only like a porousness and a seeping in of outside impressions but also this uh, this idea of um, up and down in a lot of ways interesting I now I have to reread it oh no (laughs) (laughs) Um, sure yes you do yes yes I do yes every reader out there must read this book two times um Another image that I found really striking, you know, you have two situations of like cataclysm uh, in the book where at the end there is some pure perfect thing, two storms uh, in two different stories. At the end of one, the woman walks outside, you know, of this like insane hurricane that she's stubbornly resisted and like stayed in her house as it all was ripped to pieces. Mm to find a perfect egg mm-hmm. sitting outside. <laughs> and then and then the other one where the woman has sort of temporarily fled Florida to Salvador. Salvador. Yeah. And then yeah. I think at the end there's an orange. Oh my God, there is, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh no. Oh no. <laughs> no, I'm really delighted. I'm, I'm glad that you saw I'm, these things. I'm sorry, yeah. the attentive reader is not yeah. attempting to point out like the overuse of a... That, no, that wasn't really, my point. I appreciate this. I, I will go change it in later editions. No, <laughs> do not do this. No, but I just, I don't know. I mean, without destroying something beautiful, I just noticed those images. Yeah. yeah. Well, the egg itself, I, I found so fun because it does, I mean, it is, it holds within it p- potential. I mean, it's pure potential, right? right. An egg is right. pure potential. But also her house has just been just smashed up, right? right. So, and the egg is fine. Right, the egg like, is fine. Yeah. Um, and it's all, it's a, this is a very well, much a book interestingly, about, like yeah, eggs yeah. are made by nature. Right. And houses so are made, made by, by people. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And there is a tension in this book about the domestic and the wild, right? Mm. I mean, it's it's very much, and I, I sort of feel as, it, like for me, it's like the tension on a soap bubble, right? There's mm. so much tension there between the inside and the outside. And it's it's the, the soap bubble is sort of always existing in this this beautiful like veil between the two right yeah and and that's another sort of the fragility of i guess any life yes yeah yeah you know or any i don't know like any particular configuration of a life there's that woman in the one story who's like a graduate student Mm -hmm. in literature or whatever and ends up gradually homeless Mm -hmm. throughout the story and just watching that but i mean there is this sense in a lot of these stories that you could, I don't know, that that this terrible slow trajectory could just kind of take your life in some direction if you're not yes. resisting or lucky or Lucky, whatever. right? I, I do believe that we are all very close to disaster at any minute, right? I mean, and that doesn't, I don't mean to be a naysayer or like a doomsday um, prophet, right? But mm-hmm. I do think that... Um, 
understanding this is really key to um, having a psychological ability to deal with it when it does happen. So I think the vast majority of Americans are one paycheck away from destitution, right? Um, It's it's, uh, it's, it's something like 60%. It's it's huge. And the the social fabric feels very thin at the moment. That's right. Um, And there's very little to catch us if we do fall. That's right. Um, And less and less. And less and less. And less and less. And people are uh, hoarding more and more, right? Um, and some of this is definitely climate change driven, I think. I mean, people start to see that there's going to be very little in the future. And so billionaires become even more billionaire They're um, literally building underground bunkers. Literally in, in New Zealand, in, I know. In like Silicon Valley I know. too, like those guys. Or are they building them in New Zealand? They the are, Silicon Valley guys? yes, okay, yeah. Right. Oh yeah, no, the really rich ones are doing it in New Zealand. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? Um, and and it's so, it's sick. I mean, we're sick. My... There's always a tension in all of my work between um, the individual and the community, right? I mean, this is something that I come back to over and over again with all of my books. Um, But right now it feels that individualism is crushing community uh, feeling. Part of it is the, the fact that the rich are just gathering all resources of the earth to themselves and right. spending it to send like ships to Mars or whatever, what, instead of actually fixing the problems here, right? I mean, all of this like comes out in the book, I think, all of these anxieties, all these these worries about the really thin social fabric, the fact that a graduate student, a lot of them are really close to destitution. Right. And these are the people who are the smartest in America, right? Like they're the people who care the most about the life of the brain. And uh, I mean, I mean, look at the adjunct structure. Oh, it's insane. It's insane. Even when you and I went to college, which is not all that long ago, like 20 years ago, right? Right. Um, Most of us were taught by professors, right? And then we have people who have to teach, you know, four courses at $2,000 per course just to survive. And it's just, it's, it's, it's sick. Yeah, I've been, I've been an adjunct and like, you know, I, I too am the lucky recipient of a fair amount of privilege without which there's no way in hell I could have survived Absolutely. In New York on that money. No, no yeah. way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. Very few people can. Yeah. Um, and it drives people out. It drives people out into, out of the life of the mind. Well, I certainly, can... I mean, we know, you know, there's like some kind of exodus from the humanities Absolutely. at this point. Yeah. You know, yeah. And... this is intentional. I really <laughs> think that this is structural and there's a, there's a reason why it's happening. Not well, to be like a like a again a conspiracy, a, a conspiracy theorist. <laughs> well, I mean, I know that that it is sort of widely felt among those elements who are like hostile to the humanities. You mm-hmm. know that in the end, those things were always sort of useless and not particularly pragmatic. And but of course, that, you know, they didn't like the humanities. <laughs> therefore, they never learned to think. Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. But I mean, they're you know. They're the ones with the money and the power at <laughs> this point. Right. <laughs> so we need to, to like in, incept them somehow, like, like right, plant seeds in their brains that bloom into humanity. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I do, I do know some people with money who delight in the life of the of mind. Of course, yeah. <laughs> and they exist. Absolutely, not even a question. Not yeah. to offend anyone yeah. out there who oh. might be that sort of person. Well, that sort of person would understand what we're saying. Yes, so exactly. Right. I think now would be a good time for us to jump into the second part Great. of the show, Let's which do it. is surprise clips chosen from Big Think's interview archives on unknown subjects. 
Okay, so this one is really going to throw us a curveball. It is <laughs> Richard O. Prum, evolutionary ornithologist. Sexual evolution, what duck mating reveals about relationships, social movements, and politics. Okay. <laughs> one of the interesting things we learn from uh, examining uh, uh, sexual conflict in ducks is that uh, the genital arms race between males and females is not really a fair fight. In fact, uh, uh, the advances uh, in, in male coercive capacity are really about control over uh, female outcomes, right? They are about controlling, physically controlling uh, uh, fertilization. However, the countermeasures that females evolve are not actually about power or control. They merely reestablish uh, uh, the, the, the freedom of choice, if you will, the flat playing field in which individuals are free to choose who they like, right? Uh, now, this, this um, sexual autonomy is not actually about uh, control or control over other people's uh, or over other individuals' uh, sexual outcomes. That's fascinating because this, this asymmetry between uh, uh, male, male coercion and female resistance in duck sex uh, has really fascinating parallels to uh, um, uh, patriarchy and feminism in cultures today. So, for example, uh, patriarchy is historically and even in a modern sense about coercive control uh, over female reproductive autonomy. Uh, whereas feminism uh, is uh, really an ideology of freedom of choice, right? And that, so that same asymmetry between male power and, uh, and freedom of choice uh, is elaborate and present today. And we can see this explicitly because patriarchy and uh, men's rights uh, and incel uh, movements all articulate feminism as a countervailing force of control over uh, male reproductive outcomes. Uh, but that's a fantasy. In fact, uh, uh, it, it, the, the sexual autonomy includes the freedom to be rejected, uh, which uh, uh, is uh, a lesson that we learn from duck sex. I love the producer who chose this. This is amazing. <laughs> yeah, we, yeah, we let's give a shout out to Leslie Tanaka for that oh, one. Oh, Leslie, good job, man. <laughs> um, this is hilarious because uh, as I was watching this, I thought of Jordan Peterson, right? Who actually has is been got... on Big Think, by the way, not Ugh. on this show, but he's been, he's been on Big Think. Horrible human. I don't care if he's listening. But the thing is, he gets in trouble a lot for making false equivalencies between the animal world and the human world a lot of times. Right. right. And so, like, biologists actually come out and they're like, what are you talking about? Like, cephalopod, right, monogamy as that sort of a source of human interaction. So even right. though I love to think that what this really lovely, gentle feminist man is saying <laughs> is real, I think we need to actually pay a lot of attention to the fact that 
we can't really extrapolate about human behavior from animal behavior. What do you think? I mean, I, I just have to mention this as well because I've become very interested in cuttlefish recently. I love cuttlefish. Cuttlefish yeah. are amazing, right? <laughs> and and so one fun thing that happens, which you may know about, is that so the giant cuttlefish of I think Australia, when they have their mating season, all the males come to a place, and then there's like very few females, and the females are small, and the males are gigantic. And the males all like fight with each other. And then, you know, then some of them get to like pass sperm or something, which she like holds on to. So she like keeps a bunch of it with her, right? Of different males. But the little males, they can't compete with the other guys by wrestling. So they disguise themselves as female, sidle up next to her. And then they're like, hey, you know. And And, and then, and then, but she gets the final laugh, as it were, which is that she chooses which out of all the like whatever cuttlefish sperm packets she's been passed to like put in eggs um, on a rock somewhere. And she often chooses the smaller males because they're smarter. Nice guyism, right? I mean, that's right. Right. nice guyism, right? Yeah, the guys are right. The guys right, are right. sort of like, Aww. hey, yeah, let's talk guy, about what you're interested right. in. Right, the guy yeah. who gives you the foot massage and the swim team bus, right? He's the one. <laughs> Not that that happens. No, 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 it doesn't. But um, but we can't extrapolate from cephalopods either to... Right, you know. well, so we, I think we should I mean, just, just have a lot. And it's like, just so much fun to yeah. make these parallels. But yeah. in the end, they're sort of... I mean, humans are the most complex animal of all times. I absolutely believe that um, this incel culture, like uh, misogyny is about controlling women and sure. feminism is about insisting on autonomy. But I don't know if we can actually draw I mean, the, 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 the danger, yeah, the danger of the making those kinds of analogies is that, and what happens again and again with evolutionary psychology is that they draw these things as absolutes and right. somehow determining of human behavior like and when in fact what they're doing is just smuggling in some ideological stance or other exactly you know? and my job as a fiction writer is actually to complicate narratives as opposed to simplifying and I think sometimes when we when we do this biological determinism um, we're simplifying to the point of ridiculous what is that the, the fallacy is reductio ad absurdum uh, we're sort of doing that when right. when we make these parallels I feel like there are sort of like two cultures on the one hand those who wish to complicate and think divergently about the reality of things and those who want very definitive answers. I mean, Mm -hmm. obviously, both of those forces can coexist in Mm -hmm. each of us, but... And I believe they should, right? As a person who likes the diversity of thought, I think that they should. Um, And and so I have a lot of um, problems with people who only want to simplify. Mm -hmm. I think that people who really want to diversify actually have a lot of room for the simple answer also. So... Leah, let's check out what the second of the two clips is. This is called Against Chaos. The world is a hard place, but maybe humans aren't to blame. Steven Pinker, psychologist Mm. and linguist. (laughs) A lot of people have an expectation that society ought to work in uniform harmony and affluence, and any deviation from that is, is an outrage that requires identifying which bad people made it possible. And when I began Enlightenment Now, I wanted to really orient the reader in a very different mindset about uh, the human condition. As we find ourselves in the universe, 
nothing is expected to work in our favor. Beginning with what many scientists consider uh, one of the most fundamental of scientific discoveries, namely the second law of thermodynamics or the law of entropy, namely that in a closed system, one that isn't uh, receiving inputs of energy or information, disorder naturally increases. Uh, the ability to do useful work, uh, life-enabling structure. Just because there are astronomically so many more ways for things to go wrong than things to go right, by, by any definition of things going right. So right from the start, we don't have any right to expect that the universe is going to be particularly kind to us. Indeed, the universe is uh, its not out to get us, but it just doesn't care about us. And there's just a lot of things, ways for things to go wrong unless we deploy energy and information to carve out local zones of beneficial order that keep us alive and, uh, and healthy and happy. That's a different way of just sort of thinking about the human predicament. Namely, uh, we constantly have to expend uh, effort, intelligence, knowledge in order to make things work. And our background uh, expectation should be that things fall apart. It's advances in energy capture that lead to the beneficial complexity of life. Perhaps back to the uh, axial age, the period of uh, about 800 years in the first millennium uh, BC, which saw the emergence of uh, a number of moralistic uh, philosophies arising in different parts of the world around the same time. The, the age of classical Greek philosophy, the age of the Hebrew prophets, of Confucius, of Buddha, uh, a kind of uncanny coincidence, uh, seemingly, of uh, movements that went from merely propitiating gods and making sacrifices and uh, um, begging him for victory and, and better weather and relief from misfortunes to a more universal system of uh, human betterment, human flourishing. So what led to this uh, this development seemingly in different parts of the world at the same time, according to one hypothesis by a, a team of scholars, including Ian Morris and Pascal Boyer, uh, Nicolas Beaumard, the, uh, there were gains in energy capture, in the ability to use the products of uh, agriculture, oil and fiber and calories from food, um, to uh, allow for uh, a, um, a priestly caste separate from the people who actually have to scratch out a living from the ground. And also once people's minds are elevated from just uh, putting a roof over their head, keeping the wolf at the door, um, where their next meal is coming from, they have the, the kind of cognitive luxury to think about what's it all about? Why are we here? What should we strive for? And uh, according to this theory, it was something as mundane but really not mundane as energy capture, not mundane given that the second law of thermodynamics governs our fate unless we can push it back. And so perhaps it's not such a, uh, a homely pedestrian explanation for how so many civilizations made this leap to uh, farther moral horizons. So I absolutely, believe that that's probably the case. And we're talking about, right, surplus energy in right. a lot of ways, right? So, um, but it, I don't know if it necessarily argues for a native, uh, like, hierarchy, um, which I think that you could take this idea in that direction, that, like, out of surplus 
comes civilization. Higher, the, the priestly caste. Who comes the right. priestly caste? Because if you look right now, we <clears throat> have a great deal of surplus, as seen in the billionaires who are hoarding their money. Right. Right. But it doesn't have to be that way. And in fact, civilization is the force to push against the chaos. And in in civilized countries, I would say that surplus is more evenly distributed up to the point where the people who have the most probably shouldn't have so much more, exponentially more. You know what I mean? Well, you would think we would reach a certain point of development where our energy you know, our energy capture plus the leisure time that we theoretically are supposed to have to sit around philosophizing about what we want to be and do is such that we can then say, what is the most intelligent way for us to organize all this stuff? However, I'm not sure that most of the billionaires that we have today, like they're running around working a hundred hour insane weeks they're not sitting around in the agora i mean they, you know some stupid. of them pay li- yeah <laughs> why why i mean i know fine i mean i like i just called all billionaires but i don't i obviously don't mean this sorry warren buffett yeah sorry, sorry no, mark zuckerberg but but honestly but honestly i mean let's there's a limit to how much an individual actually deserves right i mean in no, terms I completely of agree absolute with moral justice. Yeah, no, I guess what I'm saying is that the people, and we are hearing more these folks making more noise than maybe some billionaire or, I don't know, the previous you did have, of course, all the J.P. Morgans and those guys making right. noise about social beneficence and, mm-hmm. and, and you know, the, the Rockefellers did good in the world. That's but, fine, but if you're still like, if you're doing good and you still have a billion dollars, then you're doing good poorly. Right. Um, you're yeah, not yeah. letting the foundations of society come to a more equal place. Yeah, so I mean, the, it always comes back then to enlightened, you should have an enlightened government of some That's kind. That's exactly right. right. That, that is intelligently yes. and wisely distributing things in such a way that doesn't somehow disincentivize those people that are right. making the billions from making the billions, which would be useful to distribute, mm-hmm. but also doesn't allow them to hoard most That's of it. exactly where I was going. I'm so glad you got there <laughs> first. Yeah. Yeah, I have nothing else to say about that. That sounded, that didn't sound wrong to right, me, right? Right, I mean, everything is always possible. At any mm-hmm. moment in human history, we can do whatever the hell we decide to do. Mm-hmm. The problem is the people <laughs> in government right now are invested in weakening the government to the point where there is stratification, further stratification, and um, really deeply entrenched hierarchies. Right. And my impulse is to explode hierarchy and um, like be the female duck, Right, like, <laughs> don't allow don't allow hierarchy to actually exist. Are you in the midst of any like wild experiments now that you're willing to talk about? No, I can't talk about them because if you talk about them too early, you kill them. They become these little like wasted, right. shriveled plants that That's... never got a chance to bloom. Final question: When do you write? Do you write every day? Is it a morning thing? Yeah. yeah. So one of the structures that I put in place is that my husband um, gets up with our children and feeds them, gets them dressed, gives them their medications, sends them to school. So I get up uh, you, when I'm doing. Really well. Like when I'm on book tour, I do not get up. But <laughs> um, I get up at five. Your job is book tour. My job book is tour. book tour. Yeah. 
Um, I get up at five in the morning. I don't talk to anyone. I just have my coffee in my little room and I write. Um, and five I, in the morning? What time do you go to bed? Oh, so early. Like 8.30. Okay. Gotcha. And I read until I'm asleep nice. at nine. Nice. And it's, so, it's so lame. No, but, it's wonderful. Know. I try to do the same. Oh, yeah. you do? Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. good. I love waking mm-hmm. up in the world in which there are no other humans. It's mm-hmm. so good. Mm-hmm. Right, there's only my dog and me. Um, it's and your dog nice. doesn't bother you while you're writing. Oh no, she's a labradoodle. She's the best. Oh, okay, no, she doesn't she just care. Sits there she's very chill, the chillest. I think that's it for our time. Oh. Uh, Lauren Groff, thank you so much for being on Think Again. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. And Lauren's new book is uh, short stories. It's called Florida. It's wonderful. I have, in fact, read most of them twice, and so should you. Here in New York, it's the dead of the summer, and wherever you are, I hope that hot though it might be, you're enjoying it. I hope you're out there listening to music, spending time out of doors with people that you care about. In keeping with the season, we have two music-related shows coming up, very, very different from one another. The first one is about an ancient folk music that is still alive and well in a very small part of northwestern Greece. And the following week, we're talking about sci-fi's influence on David Bowie and the music of the 70s. So I hope you can join us for that. And as always, I would love to hear from you. Please feel free to drop me an email at jason at bigthink.com. Or you can come join us on Facebook at Friends of Think Again, a Big Think podcast. See you next week.